Good morning. It's great to see you here today. I uh, am excited to be looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13 with you this morning. And we're going to learn today that sin must become utterly sinful. Aren't you glad you're here? <laughs> we're going to learn today that sin must be sinful. I uh, grew up in an era that's a little different than a lot of you grew up in. My mom fed me liver and onions because it was good for me. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? A lot of you have no idea. You grew up on mac and cheese. That was your meal of choice. Mine was liver and onions. And I have not eaten liver since I've been a kid. And I will never eat it again as long as I live. It's the worst thing ever. Onions, though, they're pretty good. Today's message is liver and onions. It's good for our soul, and it's something that we need uh, to hear. And so I pray that God moves mightily as the day proceeds and just anoints the hearing of his word this morning. There are some critical facets of sanctification that we've covered thus far in this series entitled The Battle Within. And I want to review those with you uh, again this morning. Now, when I talk about being sanctified, all I'm saying is that you're set apart for God's use, that you're wholly becoming his man or woman, all right? So here are some critical things that we've covered thus far. You have to know who you are in Jesus Christ. You have to find your identity in Jesus. That is the beginning point of genuine life change and genuinely being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Secondly, you have to count yourself dead to sin. Dead men don't sin, right? But I'm alive now to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I live for different reasons, different purposes, with a new perspective, and, and that kind of thing. And then we have to abide with Jesus with a slave mentality, a slave viewpoint. He's the master, I'm the servant. And lastly, we talked about this uh, last week. You have been released from the law, and you now live in the new way of the Spirit. So you're a Spirit-led follower if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I just... That is so utterly important that we understand that this, this whole walk with God, it's about being filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's enabling you to do that which you cannot do on your own. I love when I see someone come to the Lord Jesus Christ because frequently what happens is there's this genuine change. And all of a sudden, things that didn't bother them begin to bother them. They get more honest. There's just more authenticity. And you begin to just marvel at God's work in the life of that person. We have a saying sometimes. Well, I have a saying. You can't clean the fish till the fish is caught. And once the fish gets caught and, and, and Christ catches you, then the cleanup begins. He begins to do things in you that no one else could ever do or accomplish in you. Um, let me ask you a question. Because this is where Paul takes us next. He's given us this wonderful discord on, on, uh, a discourse on, on, you know, what it means to be this transformed, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to get into this real transparent, authentic look into the battle within that he's experiencing with sin and the sin nature. So do you still struggle with sin? I'm asking you this question this morning. Do you still struggle with sin? If someone does not struggle with sin... I really want to meet with you after church because I want you to tell me what you're doing. I want to figure it out, and then I can teach it. But do you still struggle with some sin in your life? That's where Paul takes us next. And I think, I, here's what, I, I thank God for this discourse that we're about to read. 
I thank God for Paul's honesty and for his transparency because I think he addresses something that we all need to have addressed in our life. What do we do with that sin nature that wants to well up within us and take over? And I think what Paul gets after here is something that you and I need to understand. True, genuine life change has at its core an honesty with who you are yourself and an honesty before your God. And if nothing else, what we're about to read here by the Apostle Paul is some very honest revelation of what was going on in his life. So listen to the struggle Paul admits to with sin in his life. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13 now, Romans chapter 7. Listen to this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now last week we talked about this idea that one of the big purposes of the law is to reveal our sinfulness. It can't save you. It reveals your need of a savior. It reveals your sinfulness. Paul's talking about that very thing here in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and, and on. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become what? Utterly sinful. I want to bring you through a thought process this morning to help you begin to understand some of what we just read. Do you think an x-ray machine is good or bad? It's good, right? If you're in the medical field, you probably think it's really good. How about an MRI machine? That's good. It shows you things you can't see otherwise. What about ultrasound? Some of you had children. Do you love the picture you get of the little baby jumping around in the womb? Yeah. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you ever say, if you went in and say you broke a wrist or you broke your foot, I'm just relaying what my kids went through, <laughs> and you went to the doctor and you get an x-ray, would you ever say, stupid x-ray machine? If I hadn't gone and got an x-ray, I'd be fine. Would you think that? Or dumb MRI machine? It showed that I had some problem, maybe a cancer or something. I wish I never had that MRI. Would you ever say that? I wouldn't say that because that's dumb. Because that's a tool to reveal something in you that you didn't know what was going on. In Romans chapter 6 and 7, and what we read this morning for sure, the Apostle Paul is saying to you and I that the law, and this is point one if you're going to take notes this morning, the law is not the problem that we have in life. It is like an x-ray machine that reveals the problem. The law then reveals your sin problem. It shows you what's inside that you can't see with the naked eye. It was about a year ago, not a year ago, actually, about seven, eight months ago, that I went in and had an ultrasound done on my neck. <laughs> and it revealed that I had some 
evidently some problems with my carotid artery. And I remember when the pitch of that machine changed, I went, oh, no. I know how the machinery works. And I knew there was, you know, some blockage or some of that kind of issue going on. And not one time did I think, stupid ultrasound machine. I wish I never had that ultrasound. I was disappointed in the outcome, but I was grateful for the revelation that it brought about. And we have to begin to really understand that God's law works in that way in our lives, especially through the anointing of the person of the Holy Spirit, that it becomes this revelation of what's going on inside of you. And the law becomes our friend as it reveals to you and I the sinfulness in us and the deficiencies in us and the things that need to be addressed in our life. So the law is not the problem. It's like an x-ray that reveals the problem. The law reveals your sin problem. Back in the 1970s, some of you remember there was a gas crunch. Anybody remember those days where you had lines at the gas station and everything? So our legislature, our federal folks, like they usually do, came up with a solution, a sort of. We will limit speeds so that we can conserve gas. Do you remember that? And so I remember living in Iowa during the early 80s when all this was really starting to take force. And I lived in southern Iowa, and I had to travel to the Twin Cities hmm, 10 15 times a year. The speed limit on an I-35 was 55 miles an hour. Yeah, some of you go, oh, because you're South Dakota people. You think it's 80 miles an hour. No. (laughs) And I remember taking that trip going, I could ride my bike faster than this. (laughs) This is ridiculously slow, you know. And, I mean, it was just painful to go 55 miles an hour. And back then, cruise control really didn't exist yet. And so you had to sit there the whole time. Uh, it was a nightmare. And I remember hearing about Montana. I remember hearing that they put up signs that the speed limits in the state of Montana were reasonable or prudent. That was on their sign. They had no speed limit, basically, but they were trying to comply, sort of, with the federal mandate to have the speed limit because if you didn't comply with the federal mandate to have the speed limits that they were kind of saying you should have, then they would take away the federal funding for the roads that went through your state. Gotcha, right? So Montana, being a bunch of independent folk, evidently, said, we're going to just put up reasonable and prudent. Whatever that means, go whatever speed you want. If 100 miles an hour to some, evidently, is reasonable and prudent. Amen? So our family moves to Williston in the late 90s, and at that point, Montana evidently had changed their mind a little bit because I'd heard about this, but then we drove into Montana and I realized, oh, the speed limit is 75 rats. Now I know what the speed limit is. Before, I could be in blissful ignorance and just drive any old speed. Now I have to drive at 75 miles an hour. I did not know what speeding would have been, but now I know speeding because I've been what? Informed. It's now been revealed to me. That's how God's law works. It tells you something you didn't formally know. You're not in blissful ignorance. It works as this revelation tool. And it, 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 when you begin to understand this, you don't fight 
what God is doing. He, he, he's a good God that, that wants you to understand these things are there for your benefit and your safety. Now, when we talk about the law of God, let me clarify something for you once again this morning. I did this last week, but I'm going to do a quick review with you. When Jesus came, he fulfilled a large part of the law. A large part of the law of God was the sacrificial system, how you sacrificed animals, all that kind of stuff. It was priestly duties. It was the tabernacle. It was rituals. All these things pointed to what Jesus would accomplish. So once Jesus came, the shadow, the former things were no longer needed, right? So that law has passed away. But things like the Ten Commandments, they're still in full application mode to you and I today. They're like the speed limit. They're the tools of revelation that God uses to reveal to you the battle that is waging within your soul. And so that, 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 I just want to do that explanation. Now I want to go to another point here when it comes to uh, this whole uh, discourse by, by the Apostle Paul here um, we have to know then the battle that we're waging. It's not a battle against the ways of God. It's not a battle against the law of God. So many erroneously look at Christianity, especially those outside the faith, and they think, well, you know what? I'm not going to, I don't believe in that stuff. I don't want all those rules and all those holier-than-thou people telling me what to do. Evidently, they never read the Bible because there's not hardly any holier-than-thou people in the Bible. There's only one perfect person in the Bible. That's Jesus Christ. Everybody else pretty, pretty flawed when you read it. Amen? And, and it's the story of a bunch of flawed people finding a God who does a deep work in their lives. That's what I love about the Bible. I don't know about you. I'm pretty flawed. Are you pretty flawed? You should say amen. You know? But anyway, here's what we need to understand from Paul's real transparent disclosure of the battle that he's facing within. It's this. Your struggle is with your sin nature. There is where your struggle is. It's when it's just sin nature. And Paul gets real transparent about the struggle that he has with his sin nature. And you know what? I, I love Paul. He's just saying, ah, I don't know what's going on. He's just so frustrated. Now, I don't know about you, but I experienced this miracle in my life a lot. It's, I, you, you know, there's miracles happening all the time. You know that, right? So I think my old man's been put to death. I think that old sin nature's done. And all of a sudden, that thing just resurrects itself. It's like a miracle. And it wages war on me. You, you know what I'm saying? I think, I've dealt with anger. Why am I so angry? It's been, it's a miracle. What I thought was dead is now alive and well. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. He, he, he's having this war going on with the sin nature. And, and, and he knows, even though I've shared all these great truths with you about being a set-apart person uh, for God, that we're supposed to experience all this genuine life change, he knows what's really going to transpire, that we're going to, too, struggle with sin within us. And I am so grateful, and I thank God for his transparent revelation to us about the nature of the battle that's going on within us, that our sin nature wars with the things of God in our life. And then he uses the 10th commandment of all commandments. I don't know if you know your commandments, but the 10th one is do not covet. I very rarely even get to that commandment. How about you? I never hear anybody say, oh, I have a problem coveting. I've never heard that. I hear people say, well, I have a problem with lust, you know, kind of the adultery thing. I have a problem with, you know, maybe stealing a little bit or, or, or not honoring God as the one only God, you know. But number 10, we very rarely hear someone say, you know, I really have a coveting problem here. And you think, why would you do that, Paul? Are you making a point that all the commandments are 
you know, important? Are, are you saying, well, we can't even keep the least of the commandment? Um, most likely it's not any of those. Most likely it's something deeper and richer, I think. Um, Paul always does something, everything on purpose. I'm going to say everything on purpose. I mean, he's a brilliant man. Yeah, and smart. And filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I think he's getting at. At the core of coveting is a wrong desire. To covet means to be one who is succumbing to a wrong desire within you, right? Like, I'm not supposed to want my neighbor's wife. It's the wrong thing to want. It's a wrong desire. And so at the, at, the, at the core of coveting is wrong desire unleashed in our life causing problems. So if you gave rein to wrong desire in your heart, you might steal. You might rationalize, well, I deserve this, and I really want this, and I can't afford this, and why do they get this, and I don't get that. And you might say, I'm going to steal. What, what's, at the, what's at the heart of that? Wrong desire. I think that's why he uses this terminology coveting because at the heart of coveting is wrong desire in the fall of of mankind in the garden of eden we see this very kind of thing transpire you got eve there she's tempted by the serpent right and his temptation goes something like this the fruit's good for food it's good tasting and it's desirable there it is for gaining wisdom and she succumbed and gave into that desire and her dumb ox husband, who didn't do anything to help her out, does it too. He eats without saying a word. I don't understand that to today. I, I don't understand why Adam didn't say something there. He just, okay, I'll eat too, you know. I don't understand that. But at any rate, so sin entered into creation. And no more paradise, and now death rules. And it all was because of a wrong desire given into. So the heart of sin, I think, is this. A preference for your will over the express will of God. It's really at the heart of sin. A preference for your will over the express will of God. You know the sin nature rises up against the prohibitions. You know within us there's this natural tendency if someone says don't to say I want to. That's our sin nature rising up. Listen, you see this all the time. You maybe just don't think it through. I'm going to give you a couple examples and, and you're going to I hopefully uh, agree with me. But here's, here's what happens. Oftentimes you have, especially if you're a mom at home with a couple little ones, or you could be the dad, either one, that's fine. And at some point you think, I need to protect little Susie or little, you know, little uh, Sammy from, from getting hurt. So you tell your little two-year-old, don't touch the hot stove. Now, they may never have thought about touching that hot stove to that point. They may not even know the hot stove existed to that point. Now they do. And it seems like when you tell them the prohibition, now they want to touch the hot stove. You spend the next year telling them, don't touch the hot stove. I told you, don't touch the hot stove because you're going to get hurt. And you can just see the kind of battle that wages within them. Their little sin nature rises up and they want to what? They always are trying to touch the hot stove. See, I want some of you to do this experiment for me next year and just tell me the outcome, okay? Plant a really beautiful flower garden in the front of your yard. Make it really nice. And then I want you to put a great big sign up saying, don't pick the flowers. Okay? And watch those. And then have a camera and record it and see how many of those flowers get picked. 
our sin nature rises up against the prohibition. It's the battle that wages within us. And, uh, 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 see, we, the heart of sin is a preference for your will over the expressed will of God. And not so that we lose any hope here. We get to the end of, uh, of Romans chapter 7. Paul says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from all this? And he says, thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is Hope down the road here, but for now we need to be in the meal of liver and onions for a while, okay? And we need to talk about this whole battle within of the sin nature against the, the God nature in our souls. Um, Paul basically says some things I think that are kind of illuminating here, or very illuminating. He says, before the law, I didn't know what sin was. I lived kind of basically in blissful ignorance, Thinking I was okay. Now, you have to understand, Paul was this self-righteous dude, and he was at, at the beginning of the story of, of him in the Bible. He's persecuting and going after the way the Christian followers and throwing them in jail, thinking he's doing the work of God, thinking he's being a righteous dude, doing everything right. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's never the same. And now all of a sudden, he moves from being ignorant to being fully illumined on what and who Christ is. And now all of a sudden, he goes, oh, man, I see how wretched I am and how bad I am. And I see the battle that's going on uh, within me. And sin now is, is known to me. And the law has made known to me that I'm a sinner and I, I'm experiencing the death and I'm experiencing, you know, the consequences of all that. And, and I can no longer live in this blissful ignorance. And he's just really revealing to you and I the, the, the battle that goes on within us. The, and here's, I'm going to tell you something today, especially for you older dudes and women, I should say, in, in Christ. The more you mature in Jesus Christ, I, I, I think this is the case, the more you really know who Jesus is, the more you know how desperately you need him. Amen? And the more you say, whoa, man, God. And I think sometimes we think maturity means that these people get to some point where, you know what, they're just like a, kind of a saint, and we use the word saint. I'm okay with that. I, I, I know what's trying to be said there. But, but get this, maturity means, I think, to some regard, you get to the greater, greater understanding of your utter dependence upon who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. Amen? And if you, if you have that kind of approach to maturing in Jesus Christ, you're probably going to stay very humble. And you're not going to think... I have it all together. But we know Christ has it all together. So uh, uh, a key to powerful transformer living in Jesus is really understanding the battle that takes place within you and being willing to then enter into that battle and address it honestly and move from blissful ignorance to, okay, I know this is going on and I know I need to step into this awareness and I know I need to do the battle and I know that this battle is truly waging within my soul. And so um, one thing I just want to make really clear to you, the law of God is good then. The law is not the problem. I'm just going to make this a sub point. I hope that's very evident by now. Um, Paul says in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 tells us this, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances by doing which a man shall live. I am the Lord. So the ordinance and the statutes and the law of God is good because why? It's an x-ray machine. It's an MRI machine. It's an ultrasound machine. Whatever, you know, analogy you want to use. And it reveals in, in, what's going on in our souls. And it's a blessing because it shows us then 
the nature of the battle that we need to wage and what's going on and what's wrong uh, uh, with us. So I want to go to point number three here because this is where I'm trying to take us this morning. And I just want to just kind of clearly articulate, clearly articulate the core issue that we have to address if we really want to be a sanctified, genuine follower of Lord Jesus Christ. This is point number three. You must not minimize your sin nature and its adversarial tendencies towards the statutes and the commandments of God. We easily become bedfellows with sin. We easily rationalize it's no big deal. Let me give you another example here. Back to my Montana illustration here. All right. So about, I don't know, 26 years ago when I was still working at 3M, I remember one of the engineers coming and talking to me one day about Montana. He said, Montana's still a great state to drive in. You know why? Because even though they've got posted speed limits, they only have a $5 fine for speeding. Because they're complying with the federal regulations to have speed limits and all that to get their federal monies for the road, but they're just going to fine you $5 if you speed. So you know what you do? And this is what he told me. Here's what you do. This is what I heard. He's telling me this. He said, they only fine you $5. They only do it once a day. And if you get a ticket, you just show the ticket and they don't, they don't give you a second ticket. He says, so here's what I do. So here he is in his car. See how happy he is? He's going to Montana. He says, you just tape $5 to your window. And you just speed through the state. When they pull you over, you just hand them the five bucks, they hand you your ticket, you know you're ticket free the rest of the day, and you speed through the state. I remember hearing that thinking, that's so fundamentally wrong, I don't even know how to answer that back. <laughs> you know the speed is 75, but you just, you know. But here's what happens. Now get this. We do this very thing when it comes to walking with God. We take five dollars and we tape it to the window of our soul, and we're counting on the fact that God is a forgiving God, and God is a loving God, and we plan to sin. And we plan to violate his law, saying it's no big deal, because after all, our God is a loving God, our God is a, is a forgiving God, and we put the $5 on the window. And we plan to sin. And that's what Paul's saying is the precise thing we should never do. We should understand the battle that wages within us and we should take it seriously and we should see that sin causes death and destruction and this terrible progression to sin that we don't oftentimes get. We think, well, I can just lie a little bit here. God's a forgiving God, but then we have to lie to cover up the lie and then lie to cover up that lie. And then we think, well, that girl looks pretty good. We can just have a little bit of an affair. We can just do this. And pretty soon we got all this web work of going on of junk that's just messing our whole lives up, you know, and it just grows. We can't succumb to that kind of thinking, amen? So listen, this is our conclusion. Sin must become utterly sinful. Sin must become utterly sinful. A father was dealing with a son who was telling him that, you know, Dad, I do pretty good, and I know I do a few little things wrong, but what does that matter? So his dad had an analogy that I'm going to pick up on this morning for you. His dad made him a, a pan of brownies for his son. So I made a pan of brownies. You guys like brownies? These are really good brownies. I'm going to show these off. I make these brownies here. So they look good, don't they look good? They are not healthy for you at all. And instead of putting two eggs in and they get cakey, we put one egg in so it stays nice and gooey, right? And I made the frosting. I made way too much frosting. The frosting is just as thick as the brownie. That's the way it should be, amen? I don't eat these things. My doctor told me I have to watch sugar. So now I don't eat these anymore. So I'm going to give one of you a brownie. Somebody want a brownie? 
Nobody wants to take me up on a brownie? Seriously? Okay, I don't know your name, so come on up. I'm just going to hand you the brownie. What's your name? My name's Dakota. Dakota, go ahead and sit down, Dakota. Now your name. Okay, Dakota, here's what I'm going to say to you. I made those brownies with loving care last night. And there's a secret ingredient in them. Okay. I love the name Dakota, by the way. Fits our state well. Anyway, so would you still eat them? I mean, they're baked at 350. It probably killed it. <laughs> what a brownie. I love it. Yeah, yes. So the secret ingredient is I have a neighbor that has a dog next to us. And every now and then, they leave me a present in my yard. And so I thought, well, I might well utilize that present to add some texture and some fiber to the brownie. And so I took some droppings and ground it up and put it in the brownie. Just a little bit. And it was baked at 350. Would you still eat it, Dakota? No. No. Really? Even if it was baked at 450? No. Because a little bit of impurity, what? Wrecks the whole batch. It, it destroys. Yeah, I, w- I would... You know, I could have been mean and told you after you ate it that I did that. But honestly, I did not put droppings in there. It's pure brownie. You can eat it, Dakota. Thank you for doing that with me. And thank you for sitting close enough to the front of the church to get a brownie. So, listen, moral of the story is you sit close to the front of the church, you might get a brownie. Amen? All right. I'm always plugging for you to sit close to the front of the church. But here's how I want to conclude this morning. Sin needs to gross us out. Now, I'm not talking about other people's sin. I'm not talking about judging other people. Your own sinful tendencies need to begin to upset you and gross you out and disturb you. And you need to become one who says, my sin has got to become utterly sinful to me. I can't tolerate a little bit of it. It's not okay, God, to say this is okay to have just a little bit of this in my life. Amen? Then if we get to that place, we're beginning to do the battle within us. We're beginning to do what God wants us to do, and I think we'll experience genuine life change.